Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, April 6, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And in the throes of an allergy attack, Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. You, uh, yeah, you sound, you know, you sound like... Nasally, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you sound like Meg Ryan and you've got mail when she has the cold. <laughs> and he has to comes in and he brings her soup or whatever he does. Anyway, um, so uh, it's time for some ranting. It's time for just some generalized ranting yet again about the way in which the uh, wildly successful effort to combat COVID and get us out of the pandemic uh, is, uh, is being covered. Um, so... Uh, we are now hearing that uh, we are basically now vaccinating in excess of 3 million people a day. On average, that number will probably go up significantly over the course of the next couple of weeks, probably to 4 million a day. Uh, and uh, as of April 19th, uh, the president of the United States hath declared, waving his magic staff, uh, that um, everyone over the age of 16 or 16 and over will be eligible for vaccinations beginning on April 19th. Um, uh, obviously, that means that there's going to be sufficient supply, and it also means that we are starting to approach the end of the scarcity problem or the problem of too many people chasing too little vaccine, and we are fast approaching the point at which we are going to have uh more vaccine than we know what to do with. And we are, as we said yesterday, going to start trying to, we're going to start getting a clear picture of who is actually refusing to get the vaccine consciously and, 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 and by choice. Okay. So um, this is what's going on. And yet, what are we here? We are Dr. Fauci saying yesterday, no one should ever shake hands again. We hear, uh, you know, because the man cannot shut his yapper He's interviewed six hours a day, and he needs to keep himself entertained, so he says a lot of crap that he shouldn't say, that he has no business saying, and that is only there to make, you know, to fulfill his own whatever neurotic interests there are in people not shaking hands so that we should all be living in in the Sylvester Stallone movie Demolition Man and not touching anybody else ever again, because then maybe respiratory diseases will, will not travel as far. Um... We have the New York Times telling us about the horror of the increasing caseload, even as, yet again, yesterday's death toll is at 532. Granted, that's higher than Saturday, Sunday's death toll of 270-something. Uh, but, of course, the death toll on Sunday, because of reporting things, is always lower than it is during the week. So we are in the 500s on death toll. We are... Uh, we have millions of people being vaccinated. We have all kinds of good news, and they're just throwing the bad news, shoving it down our gullets. So we have, I am sick, we have, sick and tired of it. We have three, some three million fewer active cases of the of COVID in the United States today than we did in you know in the in the middle of January. We're down from some you know nine million to to 6 million something. That, okay, that's, so, been, that's steadily fallen. So in other words, the numbers that you see when they say, oh, here we are, COVID, numbers going up, variants, all of this, those are positive tests, right? That's what they are. They are positive tests. Everybody knows somebody who got COVID and like had to stay home and didn't feel very well but wasn't in a hospital, right? Never had to go to the hospital, never had to, you know, got a positive test, quarantined at home, maybe felt crappy, maybe felt worse than crappy, maybe didn't have any symptoms at all. But the active cases are people in which there is medical intervention, right? So so while we are being told that we are in a terrible potential fourth wave, as we talked about yesterday, the caseload, the active medically interventionist caseload is down by 50%, right? Abe, you said it was like around 6 million in January and it's 3 no, million now? No, no, 9 I'm million sorry. to 6 million. So 9 million to, okay, that's a third. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay, so so 
the news is not as fantastic as I initially thought, but it is pretty fantastic. We are being swamped with, it's not disinformation because it's not like false things are being, we are being swamped by an emphasis on the negative that is demented. It is, it is, it, and, and I would say ultimately it's bizarrely unpatriotic in this fundamental sense, which is that, which is that we should be celebrating the ingenuity of our vaccine creation system. We should be celebrating the successful rollout, 50 state, pro- public private partnership, all of that stuff, and this you know mammoth achievement in in getting people uh, you know across an entire country of 330 million people. Uh, you know, cured and vaccinated from this disease, we should be celebrating all of this. And instead, it is like we're having a conversation with a neurotic lunatic twenty hours a day. And we're and 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 you're in a point where it's like they're like, well, what if I went outside and a boulder fell on my head? What if my, you know, it's like people who are f- afraid of flying. I mean, obviously, it's understandable. It's a gut wrenching thing to fly sometimes if you have this weird. Uh, you know, I don't know what you call it, like epistemological leap where you're saying you're going, my God, I'm like in the middle of the sky in a tin can. Like, holy, what's going to happen? This thing should just fall down in the sky. I mean, you're terrified. And on the other hand, if you've been doing it your whole life, like you need to like get a grip. And it's like where everybody is like terrified of flying and we are living through some and they're and they're controlling the conversation. I think it's yeah. I think that that last point is the most important because if if you want to go with the fear of flying metaphor, then then it's it's much worse because we're all sitting on the tarmac on a plane and it's the pilot who keeps freaking out. I mean, it's like we're like let's go, let's That's go, right. and the pilot's like we cannot go, we might fall out of the sky. And I see I say this because I spent three hours at a school town hall meeting last night, of course virtual. Where, where the people in charge of the bureaucracy are using this now as a lever, both a moral lever, because there was a lot of tutting about how dare we put anyone at risk, as well as a kind of bureaucratic lever to insist to double down on whatever policies and procedures they have in place right now that they want to keep. It's true for schools. It's true for a lot of public health officials. It's true in a lot of areas that are controlled by special interest groups that haven't minded the pandemic lockdown, as we've talked about a lot. So I think we're going to see that, especially with this announcement from the Biden administration with vaccination, that bifurcation is becoming more and more clear to the average American, and people should be a little concerned about it. I just, I think Fauci's comment about uh, no handshaking in the future to me is um, so particularly egregious because if we're sitting here talking about trying to get back to normal, this is saying not only are we not getting back to 2019 normal, we're not getting back to the normal that was uh, the normal. Millennia old. Yes, yes. We we are now... Remember, the handshake was to prove that you didn't have a weapon in your hand. Like, there's a whole reason why we developed it. It's a convention that has survived many worse pandemics. He's predicted. He's not just saying we shouldn't. He's predicted that it's going to go the way of the dinosaur. Yes. Which doesn't make any sense because people are still... I I shook a hand yesterday. Oh, that's very bad. Okay, so far... But I mean, you know, there I are, you know it's a, it's it, it's a class system because you don't you don't shake hands when you're when you have a, you're around people in a certain socioeconomic status. But then you go to the garage, you go to the local diner, and people don't aren't abiding by these restrictions. Thank, They're thank not God. listening. I, I, I just I just want to point out what, what it says is what, when Fauci says that he's saying we are now must be in an indefinite state of high alert about the danger posed by our fellow man forever. Um, and people think that, you know, oh, if Trump had listened to Fauci, oh, if Trump then only... The, this is exactly how Donald Trump feels about handshakes. This was, so this I, was, he said the same thing, you know, eight months ago. I mean, John, you have something you want to say, but I do want to go on a generalized rant myself about Joe Biden's um, <clears throat> vaccine comments. Because he's been branded by the press, I think now artificially, as this candidate of optimism, as this, you know, beacon of hope in the future of this country. And it is entirely unfounded because the his messaging strategy here has been to strike out the most pessimistic position possible and backtrack only when the facts on the ground invalidate that position. It began with the vaccination rates where he said, you know, I'm going to get 100 100 million shots and 100 million arms after uh, 100 days. 
because there's a lot of round numbers and the round numbers sounded nice and everybody observed, well, that was the trajectory we were on already. They said they wanted to open schools, maybe like a 50% of schools open to, you know, to a certain degree when he was describing what was already the facts on the ground. And it was a, compl- a very underwhelming and unambitious target to set. And they revised it upward only when people began to notice it. And when he set this thing, they're like, okay, you know, after this certain period in, in May, we'll open it up to all ages as though we had any control over that situation. It was a guidance to states. And people who've been following this thing said, well, not only are certain states there already, most of them will be there based on their current trajectories well ahead of your time frame. So he's only, again, acknowledging that which is already existing and, and it has undershot the goal consistently here. To, ex- to an extent that, by the way, also this notion that you should your 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 objective on January or July fourth is to have really small gatherings with immediate family only. You can be sure you can put money on the table down and be certain that that will expand only when the administration notices that that's what's already going on now, and so they can take credit for it. Um, at a certain point, this people are going to acknowledge that what we're hearing from this administration is hopeless pessimism that doesn't comport with their daily lives. Noah, you made a very <clears throat> key point I hadn't really put together just now, which has to do with July 4th. There is a class-based distinction going on here that is getting starker with every passing minute. Because you are right that ordinary Americans, middle-class Americans, are going to have big barbecues on July 4th and meet each other and hug each other and going cry, to <clears throat> wait <laughs> and cry a little bit and talk about how the last year was so awful and look forward to the future and people in the very upper middle classes to the upper classes may not you know why because they don't need other people quite as much I mean, I, you know, I'm not saying everybody needs other people like they need air. Like we're, we're, we're social beings and we can't. But the more affluent you are, the, mu- the, the, the more you can cosset yourself and steady yourself and comfort yourself with things and objects and safety precautions and tools, the more you are seduced by these ideas that are floating around in the ether that if you just do this, that, and the other thing right, you might live forever like this bizarre singularity stuff that we hear from these billionaires now who are literally talking about trying to find ways and means in which they can survive to 150 or 200 years old. I mean, this is the most extreme version of this, but ordinary people don't have the luxury of living a fantasy according to which if they have just enough means and enough purpose, they can protect themselves from the elements. And and there's a kind of luxury good. There's going to be a kind of luxury good to being the sort of person who only sees five people. But that's exactly right. Because for throughout this pandemic, (laughs) there has been uh, a certain uh, population of in the US that that has had greater exposure to the risk all along. So by the end of this year, of course, they're like, well, now we have vaccination. Now people are the cases are going down. It makes common sense. And they're the ones who actually had to go into work. They stock the grocery store shelves and drive the trucks and fix the cars. So for for to, to listen, I think Noah's right. That elite opinion is going to become more revealingly elite because it's the people who've had the luxury of locking down in the in their own large, more spacious homes, not crowded, not you know able to order in all the food they need and everything else they want and do their jobs from home and create you know nice pods for their children to be educated in. Those are the people who now don't want to let that gate down. I mean, it is or a moat or whatever it is they've created for themselves. It's the average American who who has a better and more rational understanding of risk right now, even though they're constantly pilloried by an elite media that treats them like they're idiots. I think that is such an interesting point, John. It's like um, going to take the waters or something. You know, it's like uh, it's it's like they have this, you know, a- access to this life supposedly life preserving practice and it and it is absolutely the, the split continues and continues and continues by the way you can see it in different neighborhoods in manhattan you know uh i live in 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 midtown which is very mixed in all sorts of ways um and uh you mean you mean sociologically mixed demographically yes. mixed yes. and income level mixed uh, precisely yeah. thank you yeah okay and um so uh i've had both shots um 
I assume a lot of other people have had both shots. Walking around in my neighborhood, one in every 10 or so, 15 maybe, pedestrians uh, are not wearing a mask. Uh, when I go to the Upper West Side, absolutely everyone's wearing a mask. When I'm on the Upper East Side, absolutely everyone's wearing a mask. So you sort of see it there. Well, I mean, so the masking, of course, is, yeah. There, So at what point in history uh, do you get visual signposts of like affluence and social status. I mean, in America, it's been, it's a little hard. Like it's been, it's been a little hard for a hundred years. Like the rich learn to hide their wealth in certain ways often. So they, you know, live in houses you can't see behind hedgerows. You can't peer over. Um, But, you know, they dress pretty much the same way as we do. You know, Mark Zuckerberg's walking around in his hoodie, like Trayvon Martin, you know, I mean, you're wearing a hoodie, you're in sneakers, you know, you walk around, you do this, you do that, you go to you go to basketball games like other people and all of that. But, you know, historically, the rich behave and conduct themselves in ways so that they are visually separated from everybody else. Like the classic one is obviously like brocade, right? Or, you know, fancy clothing or whatever. Um, and, and the other in in in, in times of um, of po- real poverty or like systemic poverty is uh, you know weight right I mean like like being plump being being plump having uh, in 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 18th century novels the man of um, the man of sensibility as he was called a sort of hero of the British late 18th century novel was somebody whose hands were soft. Because he didn't work with his hands, and he was somebody very sensitive to smell and sensitive to, you know, the kind of the vulgar, more disgusting parts of life. Because his sensibility was so fine that he, you know, was able to lift himself away from the grubbier parts of life. This is something that people want. Obviously, it's kind of a temptation. It's a kind of an evil temptation to separate yourself from your fellow man by by means of signs and portents and things. Maybe the mask is going to be that, uh, you know, like maybe this is the sort of thing that people are going to use, not just like people who are worried about disease or immunocompromised or whatever, but also people who are sending a signal that they are part of a certain social strata. But already is that. Yeah, I was going to say that to a certain extent. Um, Insofar as people who are wearing two masks or wearing a cloth mask over a surgical mask, for example, or even just a surgical mask. And then the people in my neighborhood who wear a bandana under their nose, uh, only to comport with statute. And and Nancy Pelosi, who has, you know, bespoke masks that match every single outfit that she wears for every press conference. I mean, the signaling, the clothing signaling with masks actually completely tracks uh, socioeconomic class. You see it all the time. But when the statute goes away, does the masking go away? That's my question. That's exactly, this is an interesting social, social test case. Because clearly, and I mean, this happened in Asia after the, you know, the first real pandemic outbreak in 1997, a lot, there are people who never stop wearing masks in public for possibly very good reason. You know, maybe they were, you know, anytime they got a cold, they put on a mask or something like that. That is the sort of thing that could conceivably endure, but probably will only endure by class. This is that, more like that's what I'm saying. holding the, the, the little packet of herbs that they used to keep up near their nose when they had to travel through the gross parts of town where there was, you know, before there was any sort of sewage <laughs> system. I mean, the rich yeah. will do that. I mean, I think that I, I see it in my neighborhood. I see people with very fancy masks and they, they're like, they're vaccinated. Everyone around them is vaccinated. They're still going to wear that mask to show solidarity with all the people who well, might I not am. I mean, I, I mean, <clears throat> the social norm where I live has not changed. Like, I, I don't live in Abe's neighborhood. I live on the Upper West Side, and the social norm has not changed. I don't need to wear a mask anymore. I am doubly vaccinated. I'm past two weeks. Uh, I believe I have a, the Pfizer vaccine. All the research suggests that the Pfizer vaccine is 94% effective in interfering with transmission of the virus if I should somehow magically and mysteriously be able to catch it, despite the fact that I'm vaccinated against it. But I'm still wearing it because not to wear it is a social affront or it's a kind of thing where you don't want to be the only person walking down. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a form of a resistance 
And I don't feel resistant in that way, but I'm not going to feel this way in June. But this is also why, I mean, because it's become a self-reinforcing social norm was, is one of the reasons why people like us weren't apoplectic over places like Texas becoming the 15th state without a mask mandate, in part because when you go to places like Florida, you go to places like Texas, businesses enforce this stuff, towns enforce this stuff, cities enforce this stuff, and most importantly, communities enforce this sort of thing. And those that don't aren't necessarily at a higher risk than those that do. Um, To his credit, and I rarely give him credit, so I might as well now, Anthony Fauci has admitted that he has encountered the limits of his predictive capacity with regard to Texas. He was on Morning Joe this morning and was asked, why are case rates still declining three weeks after this mask mandate went away? You know, we all said that this was going to, they were going to rush heedlessly headlong into this hedonistic orgy of maskless, you know, interaction. And it hasn't happened. What happened here? And he just, he goes, he says, I don't know. I really don't know. And that's comforting in a way to hear these, you know, people who are the public health bureaucracy, which has become so invested in its own um, capacity to uh, belief not capacity, belief that they can predict the trajectory of this virus and case rates to say, well, maybe we don't actually know. I don't know. Well, what we know, <clears throat> we know that there is a, the country of Israel where there, <clears throat> where I, I think it's now close to 6 million people have been vaccinated. And we know that the transmission and, and power and force of the vaccine has gone down 90%. So we know that. That's what we know. We know this is a petri this is a this is a petri dish in which the in which the germs or whatever the gross things are going away because of the use of the vaccine. And this again goes to this question of what it is that is going on and what public health is and whether there is a crisis in public health that we are dealing with here because the idea that the news should be bad is clearly a very, very powerful and potent central notion in the public health world. If you're talking about a disease, you're trying to get people to pay attention to it, you are extremist, you are hysterical, and you are alarmist. And that is these are things that scientists and you know are not supposed to be right they're supposed to be the opposite of that they're supposed to be dispassionate they're supposed to they're they're using um hard information that is inarguable but the incentive structure and the mindset of this world that has now governed us for a year has turned in a very 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 strange direction and I just don't really understand where we're going to go with this, particularly because we're going to spend the next decade dealing with variants of the coronavirus like the flu. So instead of getting one shot per year, you know, to deal with the flu, we're going to get two, right? We're going to get a flu shot and we're going to get a corona shot, coronavirus, you know, SARS-CO-19 shot, SARS-CO-2, whatever the, whatever the number is. We're going to get some shot to deal with the variants. But it's not just that we can't trust them. It's that they they have been rewarded and they have been indoctrinated in this idea that their role is to scare the bejesus. Excuse me if you were a believer in the divinity of Christ. I apologize. To scare the crap out of everybody. And that is not what public officials are supposed to do. You know, and we're now we're back to the uh, moral panic and uh, stuff that uh, Jim Meggs wrote about so brilliantly for the magazine uh, last year. That this idea that what public health authorities are supposed to do is lie to people, either to make them feel good or to feel bad, is very, very disturbing. Right. Well, they've been engaged, and some of them have admitted as much that they've been engaged in manipulating public opinion as that's what they believe their role is. But the difference between you know what we've been dealing with here and the the regime that you're talking about where you know it's, it's like a flu vaccine and you get it annually or maybe twice a year um is that the the incentive for you to get that is that you miss out on society not that society misses out on you not that society has to shut down before you 
uh, take the responsibility of being a responsible person and getting inoculated so that, you know, you can participate in society. If we're in a position here where we have rolling blackouts, rolling social blackouts as a result of these waves of this disease, it's a whole new social compact. I don't think anybody would have a problem with the idea of getting a new coronavirus variant shot at your local CVS every year like you do a flu vaccine just because it's a, it's a layer of insurance. Maybe not a very effective one, but nevertheless one. But the, the incentive for you to do that is so that you don't get sick and have to miss a week of work or school. Not that school has to shut down or work has to shut down. I mean, that's a completely different idea and one that I don't think people will accept. Well, and we know we do have on the on the school point, we have some evidence that the longer when, when schools are shut down, the mistrust about the safety of school being open grows. It's when you reopen the schools, it's actually a signal to the community that it's safe to return. And then parents and parents who are then polled say, oh, yeah, now I, I feel like it's safe. And, and, and as we know, the data prove that it's safe. But it's you're right. What's the if we're going to keep shutting things down out of fear of the virus spreading? In, in a weird way, for some people, that's a rationale for not bothering with vaccination, especially if we're going to have to keep getting these shots as, in the years to come, which we likely will. And a so, certain class of people will welcome that condition. So, guys, um, today is April 6th. This marks the publication day of a book uh, published by Inside Editions, Unstoppable, The Ultimate Immigrant Story, an epic David and Goliath adventure, and an inspiring manual for survival in the face of tremendous odds, as people emerge from the devastation wrought by global, by, by the global COVID-19 pandemic, the true life story of Siggy Viltzig offers a roadmap for recovery, vividly rendered by renowned Holocaust biographer Joshua M. Green. Unstoppable is a breathtaking and timely read. Go to Amazon.com and download Unstoppable. Comes out today. Joshua M. Green, the story of Siggy Viltzig, heart-rending inspiring, thrilling, buy it today. And we thank them for sponsoring the Commentary Magazine podcast. Um, so uh, Joe Biden got good news last night from the Senate parliamentarian, uh, who has now become the most important official in the history of the United States, as he has now indicated that certain rules that have governed the budget reconciliation process can now be relaxed considerably. They have been relaxed in the past, a little bit here and there to allow certain bills to be voted on in the Senate to be passed by a mere 51 votes rather than the 60 votes required by cloture uh, that help create the conditions of filibuster where bills can't get to the floor to be voted on. So um, this process known as budget reconciliation the Senate parliamentarian has now apparently ruled that as in this moment and going forward, uh, in a complex and arcane way, the budget can be adjusted or bills can be adjusted to change what their budgetary effect is. And therefore, more bills rather than just one per year can be voted on with this 51 seat margin rather than 60 seats. And that means the infrastructure bill can now likely pass without Republican support, and a bunch of other things can likely pass without Republican support that we haven't even gotten to yet, including, I don't know, climate change stuff and other things. And um, uh, so he has now been given, uh, uh, you know, uh, the golden ticket by, you know, uh, by the Senate parliamentarian. And... Um, so we now find ourselves in this very interesting position where Joe Biden four and a half, one by four and a half points has the same uh, electoral vote margin as Donald Trump had in 2016, F five seat democratic majority in the house and a, and a split 50, 50 Senate is now likely to be in the position where he is going to push through spending and taxation plans of a size unimaginable previously in the history of the United States, one after the other after the other. So there are two different, either he is going to change the facts on the ground so significantly that we are entering a period in which the era of big government is back, as we've already talked about, and is, un, uh, is irreversible because so much is going to happen so fast. Or 
he is going to provoke a backlash, the likes of which I don't know that we've even seen in 1994, 2010, or 2014, or 2018, or 2006, the backlash vote, midterm backlash votes. Because who signed up for this? I don't even know the Democrats who voted for Biden because he wasn't Elizabeth Warren and, uh, you know, and uh, Bernie Sanders proposing $50 trillion in spending or whatever, if you remember that, on healthcare and stuff like that. He wasn't them. They voted for him. They picked him over, over them, and he is now turning into them or like them, not quite on steroids, but maybe on, you know, ibuprofen or something. And he is uh, – people didn't – this is not – what was this was not what we were told was going to happen yeah does but my question is this is there a backlash merely because this is what he's doing and people we hope somewhere in the conservative spectrum or center don't like presidents doing this kind of thing or do does the backlash have to wait until the results of this prove to be bad um, until he, the economy is overheated, until all the supposed um, infrastructure spending that isn't on infrastructure proves to, you know, have gone toward a whole bunch of things that have failed and have, you know, been um, uh, uh, exploited and, you know, uh, all sorts of funny business going on with those kinds of sums. Um, you know, is it is it just an ideological backlash or are people going to look at the state of where we're at as a result of these policies and then say no more? Because that'll take longer. Well, so there's a bit of a rational exuberance on the part of Democrats right now. They're like, OK, we can pass infrastructure via legislation, but you also still have to get the entire Democratic conference in the Senate or Democratic caucus in the Senate on board. Joe Manchin is not on board with this project insofar as it includes an, a corporate tax increase of 28%. So if they get rid of that, or at least reduce it, um, it might ironically forestall a kind of uh, reckoning with the, the spending that we're engaged with here, because there will be no immediate downside. It's just all deficit spending, nothing coming out of your pocket, nothing coming out of capital investment. So Americans won't really feel it as much. They'll just get a lot of goodies and we'll just, you know, careen headlong toward the, the, the uh, budget crisis that's inevitable. Okay, but uh, to the point about they'll get a lot of goodies, I'm, I'm curious if there isn't some overreach that they're already building up here that, that's going to come back to bite them. So so Pete Buttigieg and a couple of other administration officials are already making these like promotional videos and going on television saying the infrastructure bill is going to create 19 million jobs. Now, as you know, the extremely right-wing news site CNN even couldn't take that at face value and fact-checked it and said, actually, it's not going to create jobs. You know, what, what there was a Moody's report that, that looked at it. And what the Moody's report said is that, well, it's estimated that it might add 19 jobs between 2020 and 2030 if it gets passed. But we'd probably also have 16 million jobs that would be created during that period anyway. So really, it's more like if it does create jobs, it's 2 million jobs. But if you look like the way they're going to market this is they're going to go wide, right? This is like, look at us. We're bold. We're brave. We're building back better. And I'm not sure that that uh, if even CNN is already fact checking those bold claims, and that suggests to me that that they're not going to have quite as easy a ride as, as maybe one would suspect, at least from the media on some of these claims. I, I mean, Abe raises the most, you know, uh, telling example, right? Because again, as we've said before, over particularly over the past week, there have been liberal policy changes that have had immediate parlous consequences, though not quite the political effect as yet that we can see, meaning some of the criminal justice reform things that went on in 2019 and in 2020 with parole, and defunding cops and doing all that, that it basically turned, you know, Minneapolis into a nightmare zone and Portland into a nightmare zone and Seattle into a nightmare zone and New York City into a crime, you know, into a, a complete reversal of, of 35 years of crime dropping um, and all of that. So that's like instantaneous, right? This, you can't really have an instantaneous bad effect, particularly as it's going to be papered over by there seems to be a general consensus from the right, from sort of eco- economists on the right to economists on the left, that we are going to see growth that might be the fastest, uh, um, G, you know, growth, economic growth since 1984 in 2021. You know, we might see an annual growth rate of six and a half to seven percent. 
So it's going to be papered over, right? The whatever, whatever. And that's before all these bills happen. All this idea is that the, the coronavirus relief bill will play a role in that. But um, uh, nonetheless, there is going to be, so they're going to have good economic news going into the midterm elections, Democrats. That said, nobody signed up for 4 or $5 trillion worth of spending. I mean, the federal budget is $4.5 trillion. The entire federal budget. That means defense spending, Social Security, Medicare, you know, everything, all the entitlements and every piece of spending that the federal government does this year and last year and this year alone, we're spending in excess of the entirety of the federal budget over again by half. One thing that Democrats apparently, or the Bernie Sanders wing, wants to get done via uh, reconciliation, which they probably could do theoretically, is to reduce the eligibility age to, um, and eligibility by which means you are forced onto Medicare, um, uh, to reduce that age from 60 to 55. And I, I, they'll probably encounter some resistance among Democrats, but they might, they might pursue that and they might, they might get it. On its current trajectory, according to the trustees, as of this year, Medicare trustees, Medicare's hospital insurance fund reaches the point of insolvency, meaning that they have to pair back benefits in 2024. What, what's, what's happening in 2024? <laughs> it's not just that, by the way. What that means is you either have to pair just back to, Just to clarify, it's a presidential yeah. race. And, the, and the, right. night, yeah. the nightmare scenario is that Democrats have to explain to seniors why they can't get the benefits that they need from the Medicare's hospital insurance fund in an election. No, no but here's what's even more important than that, which is that the way you don't pair it back, obviously, is to raise taxes, right? You have to raise taxes in order to pay for these new benefits. They're already going to have spent all the tax increases on on retrofitting school buildings to have ventilation systems or whatever, or, you know, to pay for the child care of anybody who, you know, voted for Joe Biden. Or social however, infrastructure, John. Social, social human infrastructure, infrastructure human. right. Well, you can't do it over and over and over again. If you're going to raise taxes by a couple trillion dollars in 2021, Go back in 2024 and go, ah, you know what? We got to raise taxes another like $4 trillion because we got to pay for Medicare. And you know what? Social Security is going insolvent in around 2031, something like that. So we're like six years away from another couple trillion dollars in uh, tax increases. And that's when you get to the, hmm, so you're saying what you are basically is you're just there spending trillions of dollars and trillions and trillions of dollars. That's who you are. Mazel tov, Good luck to you, because I know that Republicans are no longer budgetarily conscious. I know that Republicans have fallen for big government and it's been 30 years and they don't, they're not, you know, sitting with the green eye shade looking to see whether the budget is balanced or not. That is absolutely clear. But there is a note, there is a party that opposes large taxes, and there is a party that likes large taxes. Uh, and uh, there are people in the United States who believe that government should spend a lot of money and tax a lot, and there are more people who don't think that, and we are now in the reverse Donald Trump situation, which is that Joe Biden is looking at the possibility of shrinking his base rather than expanding it. He added a lot of people to the Democratic base who were sick of Trump, didn't like Trump, didn't want to vote for Trump, but that's the thing. I know polls say that people like this, but polling is garbage, as we know, under underestimates support for Republicans and Republican issues and all that is getting worse in that regard, should be viewed with grains of salt, and in any case does not represent bipartisanship just because Republicans say, if they say, do you like infrastructure, or not just Republican fellow travelers or suburban women who voted Republican until 2018 or whatever. Just because they say they like infrastructure and they want COVID relief doesn't mean when you tell them that there's going to be $2 trillion in tax increases, they're going to go, that's good. That's fine. I like that. You know what? I'm really happy that teachers are going to get free childcare. That's great. More of that. That's fantastic. How great. You know, um, they didn't sign up for this. That's all I'm saying. Now, maybe he can make the case that they should. Maybe, as I say, he will he will create new facts on the ground that will create a new consensus in the United States, and that could be real, and I'm not discounting that. 
But um, I don't see a lot of suasion going on here. I don't see a lot of minds being changed because Biden is out there making arguments that appeal to people in the middle at all. He is not appealing to people in the middle at all. This is a good point because a similar we've seen a similar thing with the uh, the the most recent uh, coronavirus relief package, right? We were everyone was told by the Biden administration that as soon as it passed, he was going to go on a on a, this persuasion tour. He's going to send Dr. Jill and Kamala, and they're all going to go out there and they're going to they're going to really show you just how much they've done for you. That kind of fell flat in part because the border crisis escalated, and also I think because there's a sense I I mean at least I get among the the sort of non beltway types I talk to of Americans just kind of want to get on with it. It's like okay, we got the relief now. Now we got to get. It's not build back utopian or even build back better. It's get on with it. That should really be the message here because I think for most people that's the point that they're at. It's like let's reopen, let's do all this, let's get let's let's get back to being a productive country. Um, and I think the Biden administration has overestimated it's how much people really like them versus how much people really dislike Donald Trump. And we've talked about this many times, but that that, that, that to me sort of captures how all of their efforts here are falling flat in terms of messaging. That is a very important point. Biden ran as the anti-Trump. He didn't run as the next FDR. He didn't run as the next LBJ. He said, I don't like the condition of the soul of the country, the division, the nastiness. This is not who we are. That's not what I want. And I also am not Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or, you know, Julian Castro or whoever saying that, you know, we need to upend the very fundamental economic structure of our country and our society. He didn't run on that. He did not. Now he is saying "I'm that that's what he's there because he's there to fulfill his agenda. But that wasn't the agenda. So it's fine for him to switch his agenda in some ways. I mean, basically, it's a test case. If he can get it through, if he can get it through the Congress, sign the bill. That's how that's how it works. He can change facts on the ground and maybe convince people otherwise. But he was not Trump. He wasn't the second coming of the New Deal. I'm sorry, he just wasn't, and now he is. And who voted for him for that? Anybody who wanted that didn't vote for him in the primary. You know, I, I granted, like by the time most people got to vote or vote for him, there were there weren't really many options left. But that's not whom who the Democrats chose. It's not who the Democrats chose. That's what's interesting to me. It's not to say that Democrats are going to vote Republican in 2022. I mean, hardcore Democratic primary voters are not going to vote Republican in 2022. And it's also not that they won't be able to dance happy days are here again if we have big economic growth and all of that. But he's he's pulled a fast one here. Out of vanity, I think. In other words, like he didn't. Oh, have that's much so explicit. Of... No, that's explicit in, okay. in an Axios piece where these unnamed advisors, Biden advisors, were touting their own successes, taking a victory lap, saying they directly appealed to his own ego, saying he was going to be a more transformative president than even Barack Obama, have a grander vision than Barack Obama, taking a chunk out of Obama's ego, um, which is probably something we won't hear at the end of. And, uh, and, and, you know, convincing him that he could be this transformative figure economically. So one thing that I, that I think will forestall this reckoning that you're talking about, particularly among Democrats, is that even the Democratic constituencies that voted for Joe Biden are progressive economically. Um, they're, they're not afraid of economic transformation of this country. What they didn't go in for was the woke stuff. They didn't go in for the social justice, uh, equity-based negative discrimination in which, you know, that this kind of policy manifests in. So as long as he stays away from that sort of thing, I don't mm. think it'll turn off Democratic voters. I just don't know if you can, if you can do that. Because I the pull is so strong. Right. But, but isn't it all related? I mean, if you're, if you're, it, it is. if you're okay with the, with the, you know, economic um, liberalism, what, what do you think, what programs do you think are being funded? I mean, Right. Well, I mean, uh, they're in there too. So it's all going to be stuffed in together. And it's, of course, the question of the secondary appointments to cabinet departments and all of that, who are the ones who are going to implement the the woke policies right. that are, again, going to hand Republicans 
you know, uh, the rope to hang the Democrats with in 2022 if things go on the way that they are going on. I mean, look, uh, I, I got to get to another ad, but um, uh, Major League Baseball, we talked about yesterday, Major League Baseball pulled the the All-Star game out of Atlanta, right? So the no, no, the news last night was that the game is going to go to Denver and Colorado, which has a restrictive voting rights law that is almost exactly analogous to the law in Georgia. So it's okay <laughs> And you're going from a city that is 55% African-American to a city that's 20% African-American. So that's woke. That's really great. So they are going to drive themselves crazy the way they're driving us crazy. And they're going to drive everybody crazy. And that is just going to be shooting fish in a barrel for 2022, as far as I'm concerned. Now, let me just tell you, I'm sitting at home. I'm doing the podcast today from home. And where am I sitting? I'm sitting in the X chair. You've heard me talk about the X chair with its patented dynamic variable lumbar support and the new XHMT technology. I get unbelievable lumbar support from my lower back and I can get heat and massage therapy while I'm sitting at my desk. The X chair, heat and massage technology to my core. It increases blood flow, muscle recovery, and energy. And this makes working from home much, much, much easier. It even has four massage modes and fast warming heat technology for therapy. When I'm sore, instead of my old uncomfortable office chair, now I look forward to spending hours sitting in this ultimate therapeutic massager. You won't believe the X chair difference until you feel it for yourself. Trust me, the X chair is the luxury supercar of office chairs, and it's on sale now for $100 off. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call one 844 4x chair X chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWheels for free X wheel blade casters, xchaircommentary.com. Um... So, uh, last week, um, saw the passing of, uh, one of the best American writers of the 20th century, whose fiction, uh, suffered in the eyes of the sort of literary establishment because it was commercial in large measure and because, uh, he became famous largely because he sold his books to the movies and successful movies were made of them. I'm talking about Larry McMurtry, who died at the age of 84, author, of course, of The Last Picture Show, made into a great movie by Peter Bogdanovich in 1970, the novel Horseman Passed By, which was made into the great movie HUD in 1963 with Paul Newman, Terms of Endearment, made into an Oscar-winning movie in 1984 by James L. Brooks, um, and, of course, Lonesome Dove, which was the book of his that won the Pulitzer, uh, began, by the way, as a screenplay for a movie that Peter Bogdanovich was going to make with Henry Fonda and John Wayne. Uh, it never got off the ground, and then he took the idea, wrote this epic novel about the last uh, cattle drive uh, of these um, uh, sort of aging men in their 50s and 60s and the the, the horrors that befell them. Uh, and tragedies that befell them on the way made into a mammothly, you know, a enormously successful miniseries, multiple Emmys, Tommy Lee Jones, Robert Duvall, uh, amazing stuff. Um, he was a wonderful, but that we should talk about him as a literary figure because he was not much talked about as a literary figure, even in his own life. And um, these are uh, enduringly good novels, and I think they're going to endure in part because they they do not traffic in the cliches and you know uh, instant controversies of the moment. They're novels largely set in they're, they're novels set in in Texas. They're some some of them are set in California. Some of them um, he wrote a, a, a fantastic novel called Moving On, not much discussed. Uh, which involves um, graduate school and rodeos, uh, and a, a young woman uh, who is um, whose husband is in graduate school, and she becomes obsessed with rodeo, and it's all about, in its own way, about a, sort of a classic uh, male writer sympathetic portrait of a young woman, uh, a sexually frustrated young woman who is trying to find her way in life. 
more ambitious than she than than the society around her is allowing her to be, more interested in the world than her society thinks she ought to be. Um, it is a it's an extraordinary book. Doesn't get that much attention in his in his oeuvre. He also wrote a a, a really amazing novel called All My Friends Are Going to Be Strangers about a suicidal screenwriter, which apparently was some version of himself, Danny Deck, who appears in a couple of other novels. Um, the thing about him was that he he understood women uh, and and loved women and was fascinated by women who are who are mostly the central characters in his novels. Uh, it's interesting because of course Philip Ross biography came out this week, eight hundred page biography by Blake Bailey, and it reminds us uh, that the mid century novelists of greatest fame in the United States, John Updike Roth. Uh, Bellow, um, Hemingway, uh, although Hemingway is not mid-century, but there's this documentary by Ken Burns that just started last night on PBS. Um, the misogyny that is that these books are drenched in, the hatred and fear and loathing of women that is the animating passion of a lot of this work um, makes it very difficult to read today, I find, and was of a piece with a kind of... Um, uh, bargain basement Freudianism that you know took the idea of penis envy and then made it the you know made it the be all and end all of 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 life and uh, and the and the sort of the preapic obsessions of these writers who you know weren't interested in ordinary life but were somehow interested only in sexual life. You left out um, Miller. And Mailer, of course, <laughs> Mailer, even Mailer, the Mailer, uh, the worst probably of, of all of them. And so uh, it's just an interesting phenomenon that he, he, he died. His nonfiction wasn't very good. He wrote, I was once going to write a big piece about him uh, pegged to his uh, memoir books because he was a bookseller, famously a bookseller. He had a, he had a, he had a, essentially took over half of a small town called Archer City, Texas, with a 50,000 book bookshop. Um, uh, but it, he didn't know how to write nonfiction. Uh, and, uh, and, and his memoirs are bad. And so I like I got discouraged because I didn't want to write a commemorative piece about somebody who's the book that I was going to use it for was something that I found insupportably uh, mediocre. Uh, and so I never wrote it. But um, I commend him to you and these and this sort of just general interest in like the just the 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 minutia of everyday life and the lives of uh people who are not famous who are not rich uh who are not important but whose lives have every bit as much value and social value as anybody else's and by the way the lonesome dove is considered an elegiac portrait of the old west and all of this um, it is as revisionist and horrifying a portrait of of sort of you know frontier America as you can possibly imagine, and a portrait of depredation, environmental depredation, land seizure, you know, rape, uh, mistreatment of women, all of that. Um, and somehow it, it's gotten converted into people's minds as some kind of version of you know like. They're just two old cowpokes riding along the prairie, you know, and it is anything, anything but that. It's a kind of epic look at, you know, at a, at a, at a violent nation finding itself and, you know, being what it was at the time. Can I, can I just say that it, it is, you pointed, you, you signaled this contrast when you started talking about Murtry. But there's a way in which if you read a lot of contemporary fiction, which strains to make that the political points and, and the revisionist points, you forget just how much more powerful it is when a real novelist just tells a story. So, you know, in the UK, you have Trollope, you have Dickens. It's the detail and it's the ordinary detail that is that, that is transformative when you read it as a novel and a story in which a description of life that seems familiar to a reader can come out and makes you critis makes you sort of think more critically about everyday experience because it's not straining to make the political point. And I miss that in a lot of contemporary fiction. And I think that's something that we take for granted in some of our sort of, certainly some of our, you know, kind of more popular novelists. Um, but, you know, it was present in, in novelists like Willa Cather as well, when she wrote about the West, like she didn't, she, she, the point was so powerful because she didn't have to overreach to make it. Um, he wrote these three novels. If, if you've never read them, I would, 
I I might recommend um, aside from Lonesome Dove, but and I I really think Moving On is a, a great book, but it's a little annoying, so it might be, it might be uh, problematic. But he wrote this these three books that fu- function as a trilogy, though that was not how they were conceived. The Last Picture Show, which is about essentially about eighteen nineteen year old boys, uh, you know, uh, 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 drifting through life with not much uh, not much to recommend them or their or their lives and um, uh, kind of a remarkable, short, punchy story. And then 20 years later, he wrote a novel called Texasville that takes the characters forward, I think, or many more years later, forward about 30 years. Um, and, and he constructs them like on the plane of, of, of the new Texas, the new hard-charging Texas in the same town, but they're all in much different circumstances. Um, and uh, rather like Rabbit Run, like I mentioned, mentioned uh, Updike wrote this series of novels about his character Rabbit Angstrom, and he placed Rabbit at different times on the American timeline. Um, it's probably his best writing because, it, again, it was it's so specific and detailed about what America was like at the times that he wrote these books. And then the third, which is really a, a glorious piece of writing called Dwayne's Depressed, which is about the character Dwayne. Who uh, who ends up uh, plunt who's gotten rich and plunges into a terrible, horrible, nihilistic suicidal depression from which he is saved as somebody who is not particularly literate, but it's entirely believable by a reading of Proust's Remembrance of Things Past. These books are funny. They are vivid. They are lively. They they provide you with a, a real granular sense of life. In, in this, you know, most important of American states in, in many ways. Um, and, uh, and I just can't uh, commend him to you more, more highly. Um, and with that, let me just uh, tell you guys about ExpressVPN, because uh, you've heard me talk about it, and here we are, you know, you, if you go looking on Amazon for, you know, Dwayne's Depressed to go buy it, Amazon knows you're interested in that. They're going to start. You're going to start seeing evidence that they you like Larry McMurtry all over your Google ads and stuff all over the place. Why? Because there are hundreds of data brokers out there. They're selling and buying your data. They don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. And one of those data points is your IP address. With ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server, and your IP address is masked. Every time I turn it on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers, which makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, your phone, your laptop, even your smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button and get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash commentary and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash commentary. Go to expressvpn.com slash commentary to learn more. So we got to go, but we should probably say something before we go so we don't end on the ad, which I'm told is really a bad thing to do. You know, and on SNL, they do the good nights where they come back after the ad and they like wave and they'd say it was just such a great week and all of that. But we can't say that because we're just going to be back tomorrow morning. So, uh, Christine, are you feeling better than you did at the beginning of the podcast? Yes, the, the antihistamine has kicked in, and I feel fantastic. So I hope our listeners do as well. Um, Noah, you, you're uh, Noah, uh, feeling feeling good. You're feeling good for the time being. For the time being, <laughs> Noah has a Noah. Noah will not be with us on Friday as he has to have a a, a completely conventional medical procedure that is nonetheless not the most pleasant thing on earth. I'm not going. We won't go into detail, but I feel you I can feel take for a you. Yes, I'm turning forty this year. Well, that's it's actually not, not a fun thing. Okay, do. I don't a, recommend it. Don't turn. Yeah. Abe, you? No medical procedures. No, everything's no allergies. Everything's fine. Thank God. Okay, so it's April set last night this morning. Winter is over, so the dry skin problem that besets me all winter, I think, is over. So I shaved my beard this morning. You you don't know that I had a beard because I haven't been on TV in a year, and you won't know that I don't have a beard because I won't be on TV in the next year, <laughs> probably. But 
if you did, you would know that I had a beard, and now I now now I don't. What do you guys think? It looks my face is a little rounder than I would yeah, like it to be. Good. It looks good. I get the dry face thing too, and my wife makes me put some sort of feminine acid on my face. I forget what it's it doesn't, called. It's like hydroclonic. You know, you sound like Norman Mailer. Yeah, hydroxychlor. <laughs> yeah, hydro. Yeah, that's right. My, my wife, wife made me do it. feminine <laughs> acid. Yeah, my wife made me do it. So I killed her. I murdered her, and then I felt a vivid sense of relief and power. I and still think works. I still think that we should tease our listeners with some sort of special subscription rate because I have the photographic proof of the crazy lockdown beards and various stuff you guys all had. You know, about a year ago, I have proof, and I okay, will. Okay, you do have proof. <laughs> you do have proof. Um, so, by the way, we sold out. Our mugs. We sold out the Keep the Candle Burning mugs in just a couple of days. We are reordering. So please, if you want one, go to merch.commentarymagazine.com. We'll have new ones in next week or something like that. Get in line to get those mugs so they don't sell out again. You guys seem to want them. And remember, we still have those t-shirts, sweatshirts, tote bags, Commentary Magazine's merch. It's the merch you want. It's the merch you need. It's the merch you need for summer. So you can go on the beach and have people say Keep the Candle Burning to you when you walk by them. When you give them a hug because you're all vaccinated and have a barbecue with them and whatever else. Uh, we will talk to you tomorrow. For Abe, Christina, Noam, John Podhoritz, keep the candle burning.